It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Heathman. Brian, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you, Levin. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. And, and let's start with a really an easy one for you. If you were going to be a superhero, which superhero would you be? Oh, boy. You know, that's uh, that's an interesting question. So you're asking that question of a publisher, right? So um, I reach for literary superheroes. Fair enough. So let's talk about it for a minute. Um, the year was 1818 in London when an 18-year-old girl wrote a story that has become legendary. And the author's name, yep, I know you're thinking, right? The author's name is Mary Shelley, and she wrote a book called Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah, so it's a story that's that's spanned the decades. A lot of the things that I talk about, Laban, with the people that I work with who tend to be like ultra high achievers, I talk about the idea of legacy. And if you're interested, I'll go through the four stages of legacy, but um, those people whose names that we can quote, 100 years after their death, that's the definition of legacy. And I'll, it, in fact, if you want to hear the story, it's a great story. It'd be, a, in fact, it's a great opening story for a podcast. Well, then get straight, get stuck into it, Brian, because uh, we are we are so privileged to have you on the show. Just to give our, our audience a quick snapshot of who we're dealing with here, you are a best-selling author of a book called Book Marketing Reinvented, and the CEO of the Made for Success Publishing business. And we will go into what type of publishing business you are later in the podcast. But let's start with this story. All right. So I live in Seattle, right? Right in the shadow of two big companies. I've got Microsoft over here where I used to work, and I've got Amazon over here. And being a book publisher, you know, Amazon's fairly dominant. So one of the speakers that I work with was doing a speech on the Microsoft campus. So I went to the campus and sat through the speech. Now, this guy, at the time I saw him, he was in his mid, maybe late 60s. And he's a philosopher. And he was talking about legacy, right? And he tells about leg talks about legacy through his story as a professional musician. At the time I went to see him, he was ranked the 43rd best guitarist in the world by Billboard magazine. And here's the story, Here, here's how it goes. 
So he goes, everybody starts as an amateur. And Laban, you're going to enjoy this. Author, speaker, musician, right? Entrepreneur. The, the, the parallels for this story apply to all four of those disciplines. So you start as an amateur. Usually you're doing your craft for free. When he was 18, him and his buddies moved to London. They um, cooked and washed dishes at a restaurant. They lived in a small apartment. They ate um, hot dogs and beans because that's all they could afford. And then they went out and they got any gig that they could get. And this is, remember, this is back in the 1960s in London, which is kind of the heart of this emerging thing called rock and roll. Okay, so they're, they're doing their thing. They're 18-year-olds, right? And they're, they're trying to get famous, and they're trying to get their lucky break. Well, one night, they're playing a club. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. There's three people in the audience. They finish their set. And this one guy comes up and he says, hey, I really like your sound. It's something new. I haven't really heard this before. And I think that uh, you'd be a good fit for a free concert that I'm uh, doing in the park. Um, would you like to be the opening band at this concert? So the guy said, sure. You know, we're just trying to get our lucky break and, uh, you know, whatever we can do. So they show up and they show up to a park called Hyde Park in downtown London, there were 800,000 people there for this big music festival. And their band called the King Crimson was the opening act for the Rolling Stones back when Mick Jagger was a kid, right? He was probably in his twenties. So um, all of a sudden they go from amateur status to professional status. That's the second stage of legacy. And now there's demand across the pond in the U.S. because tens of thousands of people went back to the United States and started talking to their radio stations and they, they were buying records and shipping them over to the record stores. They started touring Europe and they started getting paid for their craft. But while they were professionals, they had a mentor. And that's the third stage of legacy. And that's being a master. And the master is working with a professional in the case of music, not on things like, you know, here's how to extend your vocal range or here's how to dance or here's how to do chord changes, but they're saying, how can we use your influence to better the human condition? Okay, that's the job, that's the third stage of legacy. And then the fourth definition that Robert Fripp, the guitarist, shared with me while I was on the Microsoft campus was that of a legend. And his definition of a legend was somebody whose name can be remembered 100 years after their death. All right, so let's think about that for a minute. So Laban, can you think of any musicians that, are, that died over 100 years ago that you can remember their name? Beethoven. Perfect. Uh, just about everybody that I asked a question, they go Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin, uh, you know, the, the list goes on, the classics, okay? Um, can you think of any more modern musicians that haven't been dead yet for 100 years, but who you think will go for 100 years? Oh, the, anyone, anyone in the Beatles? Anyone on the, well, Mick Jagger, Keith Beatles, Richards. Um, no one remembers the rest of the Rolling Stones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. People read for Elvis. Michael Jackson, 
you know, like the obvious ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Jackson, maybe. Frank Sinatra, um, you know, B.B. King, blues player and all this kind of stuff. So um, in the work that I do with people um, writing books, the same holds true for writing a book. Now, you think about a book. And this is just an interesting conversation. We were talking about books before we started recording, but the Gutenberg Press was invented and that kind of made books mainstream. And if I remember right, I think it was like 1454 when the Gutenberg Press was invented. I'm, I'm within 80 years and invented in Germany, right? By this guy named Gutenberg. And the first book that they printed on it was the Bible. Okay. So when you think about music, you know, when I was a kid, we were listening to music on audio cassettes. Okay. That was a thing. And on the radio. And then it went to CD and then it went to eight track and, you know, records. And then it went to um, uh, audio CDs. And then it went to Napster where people were doing MP3s for free. And today it's Spotify. Okay. That's just the quick <laughs> history of the music business. But when you think about a book, you go all the way back to the 15th century. The technology for a book is exactly the same. You've got a cover, you've got a binding, whether it's either glue or stitch or staples, and you've got sheets of paper, right? And we're reading books the same as people were back in 1550, okay? So what are the odds of a book holding true 100 years from now Will we be reading ebooks on on Kindles? Will we be only listening to audiobooks? Or will the physical book still be relevant? It's a it's an interesting question. And guys like me ask this all the time, because you know, 65% of the money that I make selling books for our authors comes from this derivative, the physical book. Wow. And the ebook. It shot up to 27% here in the U.S. and tailored down to 20% where it's at today. And when you talk international, this is outside of the U.S., the ebook that people read on Kindles and uh, iPads, 5%. Okay. Wow. So I'm guessing that the book is going to be uh, a relevant part of our conversations 100 years from now. And... If for those people that are interested in creating a legacy, let's say you've started a business, let's say you do consulting, let's say that you aspire to be a speaker, working with a book is a great tool, right, for creating a legacy that's going to outlast you by 100 years. So you'll be impacting generations for generations to come. That's a really brilliant explanation, Brian, and thank you for sharing that one of the things that struck me about an interview that you were doing with uh, Chris Widener was you were talking about one of your clients who is a chess master who oh, teaches yeah. kids. You able to share yeah. that story with us? Yeah, yeah. So Elliot Neff, super interesting guy, mid-40s, nine kids. <laughs> and <Okay>. Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one might imagine, but he's not, but he's not Catholic. That's wow. 
He's <laughs> not. Yeah. Um, so he comes to me and he says, hey, I want to write a book. But listen, I'm busy. I'm the CEO of a chess company. I've got, uh, uh, I think he had 80 employees at the time. Um, we're franchising our business. I'm a family man and family time is important. And I also want to write a book. I said, okay, fair enough. I've got just a system for you. So we've got a program. We call it the draft a book experience where we help people map out the writing plan for their book down to the small details, like 800 words at a time. And we assign them a 90 day plan. Now, Laban, you're going to enjoy this story. So if I came to you and I said, Hey, I want to run a marathon. You'd say, Brian, you need to um, train for the next nine months and you need to uh, work out five days a week. That's exactly what you would tell me. If I wanted to be an ultra runner like you, right? You'd probably say, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you want to kick that off in about a year from now. <laughs> All right. So writing a book, you can actually do it in 90 days. I'm not asking you to go to the gym five days a week, right? I'm not asking you to spend a year, but you can actually do it in 90 days. And there's a great system. And, you know, if you're interested in talking about that, I'll tell you how gets into the shoot yeah absolutely people people are fascinated by this world of like literature and becoming an author everyone thinks that they've got a everyone does have a, a book in them i believe but yeah go for it yeah well um i'm standing right now in uh bestseller studio you can see some of the trophies on the wall here right behind me for a couple of the bestsellers you can't see the rest of them that are over here but um, the deal is, is when you sit down to write a book, it's not just about writing. It's about having the right idea that people want to read. So, um, we specialize in nonfiction books. So we're not doing children's books. We're not doing cookbooks. We're not doing travel books. We're not, we're not really even doing like uh, murder mysteries or true crime and, you know, th those type of things. We're, we're what's called nonfiction. So a lot of the work that we're doing is uh, either about business. It's about some massive discovery that somebody's made, maybe a health benefit or, uh, you know, something that will improve lives. Uh, it's maybe a self-improvement uh, book, like a <clears throat> we just had a, well, We've had four books launch over the last eight days, and i got to wow. tell you some stories about those. But um, well, let's talk about one of them. So the author, he comes to me and he goes, Brian, he goes, you helped me write my first book. I want to do the exact same thing again. So Tyler, my son, 27 years old, he works for me full time now. We flew down to Arizona. We met with this guy. This guy is a uh, professional athlete, um, 54 now, so he's an ex professional athlete. Um, and he played baseball, American baseball. And he uh, was at the peak of his game in the 90s when he won three World Series um, as a pitcher for a team called the Toronto Blue Jays up in Canada. And he um, also, he had a, uh, a, a temper and um, he had trouble managing his emotions. 
So he came to me and he said, hey, I want to write a book about that. And so I'm thinking, hmm, who's going to buy a book about that, right? Um, so we said, hey, here, here's, a, here's a twist that we might want to try. And this is what we did in our draft of book experience. We took an inventory. We call it the story inventory of all the stories that he had during his career. Stories of um, uh, he was sitting at a dinner table at a restaurant. And the maitre d' came over and told the table to keep the, their voices down because they were getting really loud. And he stands up and he grabs the guy by the throat and tells him, <laughs> hey, you little, you know, and he went, went on a tirade. And he realized what a horrible person he had become because he, he became that guy, right? And so this whole process was to undo becoming that guy, how to manage those emotions, right? How do I manage it when a waiter comes and tells me and my family to keep our voices down. How do I manage it when um, I walk into a stadium and I've got 80,000 people booing at me when I walk on the field, right? Which, which happens. How do I keep myself in check? So we wanted to write a book about that. So we created a, a, a parable that took his story inventory and stuck it in the life of a young woman, 32, 35, somewhere in there, who was the CEO of a fast-growing sports apparel company? Think Lululemon. Okay, so we kind of we kind of created this you know fictional person, but here she is, hard-driving gal, takes no prisoners, will bowl through people. Oh, in fact, when you post this, I'm going to stick a link to the book trailer video in the comments on Done. YouTube. Actually, and, and the, the video actually says the whole thing when you think about the, um, the, the, what, what this woman is about and how this woman really personifies this author. His name is Todd Stottlemyer. Um, so that's the way we structured the book. Then we gave him uh, 90 days to get to work writing the book. 90 days later, because this guy's focus, discipline, right? He hands that manuscript off, just like Elliot Neff. He did the exact same thing. We went through his ideas. We got the inventory. Elliot Neff, the chess master. And in fact, Elliot handed off his manuscript on day 89. Done. Ready to go. And it was, uh, it was incredibly well written. But that's the system. So getting your story inventory, putting it into a chapter outline. I tell people, never tell a story without making a point and never make a point without telling a story. Okay. So we, we've got all that. We've got all of our stories. We've got all of our points. We've got it all organized into small 800 word pieces. We know exactly which story goes in which chapter. And then it's just a matter of writing these 800 word stories. It gets really easy when you start to uh, do it like that. It sounds so simple, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it's so simple easy, but you know because you've written a book so yeah well it's funny you know the with the benefit of hindsight <clears throat> you know like not having this knowledge I wonder whether it would have helped or hindered me because I I really didn't know anything one thing I did know though is that I've read a huge quantity of books in the last four or five years I think it's 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 over 400 now 
that that excludes all the hours of podcasts that I've listened to and uh, it includes audio books as well. Mm. And I and, and I um, it'd be really interesting to, to get to garner your thoughts on on what I've written thus far because it still needs some work. Uh, you know, linguistically, I still need some work from an editing point of view, but um, I found it an incredibly cathartic experience. How did you find writing your book? You know, I've talked to hundreds of authors, and every one of them explains the process of writing as being cathartic. Meaning, I mean, not, you know, that's a word that we don't use every day, but it's what I call a salve for the soul. So we're often writing about something that's important to us or something that we're very passionate about or something that we enjoy or something that causes a lot of pain, right? And in the process of writing, it's like a salve for the soul. In fact, one of my authors, this is the advice his dad gave him. And I love this quote. He said, son, um, reading makes a broad man. Writing makes an exact man. And that, that thought struck with me. So, you know, when, when you talk to a lot of authors, they'll write from a, from a pain point in their life. Okay. So what motivated me to write this book about book marketing, right? You know, who's going to read a book on how to market a book, right? <laughs> but the reason why I wrote it is the important piece. Getting a book to go number one bestseller status in a competitive playing field where there's 1.3 million new books that hit the market every year, it takes a roadmap. It takes a plan to get a book to number one bestseller status. And because it was a pain point for me, you know, what am I going to do to get, you know, the success lie to a number one bestseller? Um, the recipe is here. It was a great pain point for me. And that was the motive for writing the book. It made me a very exact man. If, if that analogy. Um, yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm, I think I'm on the same page, excuse the pun. And I, I, in all honesty, from the time that we organized this interview to now, I haven't read your book. I would ordinarily do that, but I have downloaded the Kindle and the Audible and I will listen to it. It's only two hours long, I think. Yeah, it's really uh, short. And uh, and I will and I will I'll, I'll happily give you my thoughts once I've finished reading it as well. Um, but when you actually, say, I actually, you will happily write a review on Amazon. I will happily <laughs> write. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. But but you know, only if I, only if I love it, right? And this is the thing, like uh, like it's obviously a really amazing book. And I was curious to know, like the chess player, how many speeches have you booked? off the back of your book. Yeah. So that's the whole thing. So a lot of people who are writing books, they are doing it as a tool to achieve something. So some of us have a motive to be a best-selling author, right? But uh, being a best-selling author is not going to pay the bills. You're you're really not going to get wealthy, you're not going to retire and buy a yacht. If you're Stephen King, right, you will probably 
uh, buy a yacht off those books, but that's a very rare, you know, that's probably 0.1% of all authors on the planet. So most of the people that we work with, they're using their book as a tool to generate speaking engagements, okay? And the fact that I'm speaking to you right now on this show is a direct result of writing this book, right? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be invited to these type of opportunities because, well, you know, what does this guy have to say that's interesting? Has he organized his thoughts? Um, so, so this really, this really does help in a process. But when most people go into the book launch process, that's when it gets really kind of fun. So, Todd Stottlemyre, the guy that I was telling you about, who was the baseball player who won the three World Series, the book that he wrote is called The Observer. It launched today's Thursday. It launched um, uh, nine days ago. All right. And since that, he has been interviewed by major media outlets. Um, all in, uh, he's a little over 20 interviews now. And these interviews are large radio stations in New York City. The New York Times has taken interest. The Toronto Tribune, the St. Louis Dispatch, and the list just goes on and on. And some of the podcast shows, one podcast show, yeah, Laban, you're not going to like it when I show you this, but the podcast show that he got booked on this morning, 1.2 billion downloads so far. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, are you kidding me? So those are the those are the types of opportunities that present as a result of writing a book. Now, an author, so let's say you're a business owner. So I'm a business owner. I run a publishing company, right? And we publish books. We do about 20 physical books per year and about 100 audiobooks per year. So as a business owner, I'm motivated to be in the public eye, right? Because, uh, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if I had some guy living in Toronto or some guy living in Manhattan or a woman that lives in St. Louis see some of the activity that we're doing and then make a phone call and say, hey, would you uh, teach me how to write my book? Or, hey, I finished my manuscript and I'm looking for somebody who's going to do a you know, a, a bang up job getting this thing published. So any business, business owner has that same desire, whether you do uh, strategic consulting, whether you are doing a mastermind program that you're trying to promote, whether you are manufacturing tires, okay? All those people have come in and have written books and have used the books as a platform to prop up the visibility of their businesses. It's an awesome thing. What's the hardest part about writing a book from your own experience? <laughs> um, honestly, it's the, the hardest part is the big idea. So it's what I call the positioning. So a lot of people come and say, hey, I want to write a book. I... Um, you know, I've got a I've got a program that will help um, mothers better parent their children, and we've written uh, you know a, a system for doing that. Okay, so the question is, how is that book going to cut into the market 
against all the other parenting books that are on the market in a unique way where it will catch threshold and become bestseller. That's the hardest point. So I'm working with a guy right now. Um, he is a real estate developer and he has built skyscrapers in Manhattan. So he's, he's a commercial real estate developer at the highest levels, okay? Top of his game. He's done over 70 projects. Um, and he wrote a book about how to build commercial real estate, okay? And he found me, the publisher, and he threw the manuscript over the fence and said, hey, let's, let's do this. Let's get this published. So I'm taking a hard look at it. And uh, there's a number of things that need to get tweaked in order for this book to be a commercial success, okay? That truly is the hardest part because you know that old saying, you don't know what you don't know, okay? Well, unless you've been, you know, uh, you know, on sales calls, selling books for 15 years, you just don't know what these buyers want, right? But there's people out there like me who do this for a living. We've, we've taken the hard knocks. We've made our mistakes. And uh, it, uh, it, it requires quite a, bit of, uh, quite a bit of heavy lifting to do it right. You, you talk about, a, <clears throat> excuse me, you talk about a hybrid model. Uh, the hybrid business model with what you do versus self-publishing and the large publishing companies. Can you explain a little bit about what that is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's actually an interesting question. So when you write a book and you get your manuscript done, you got three choices. It's simple. Um, you can get traditionally published, and that typically looks like this. You get a literary agent who shops your manuscript to the big four, Hachette, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, et cetera. Um, They uh, will sell the rights to your manuscript to these big publishers and off you go. The publishers will write you a check for the rights to buy your manuscript. And they own the copyright for your book and it's exclusive and you earn a small percentage of the royalties, okay? Um, So a lot of people, they're saying, well, I don't want a small percentage of the royalties Um, and only these these big companies, they only accept 1% of the manuscripts that come across their door. They reject 99% of them. So self-publishing then all of a sudden looks pretty attractive. You get 100% of your revenues. You hire the company to publish your book. You keep 100% of your revenues, right? Who who doesn't want that? And you control your copyright. So you're in complete control. And it it sounds like, oh, and you don't have to wait 18 to 36 months to get your book published. You can get it published in three months. Who wouldn't want that deal, right? The problem is, And I made this mistake with my first book. My first book was called Conversion Marketing, all about how to convert website visitors into paying customers. So I thought I was pretty smart. I'd come off a big success in the publishing business. Um, I started an audiobook publishing company, and we were making millions and millions and millions of dollars per year in the first year we were in business. Wow. And I got cocky. And I thought I knew better. 
and I self-published because I could keep 100% of the royalties and I could keep complete control of my copyright. And this is after Wiley, one of the big companies out there, sent me an offer to publish my book. I tore the contract up and said, who would ever sign that? And then I self-published. And then I learned the hard way why self-publishing is challenging. So self-publishing is a challenge because with 1.3 million books coming out every year, who's going to read those? Does a retailer like Barnes & Noble, or at this time I was calling on FedEx Kinkos, does FedEx Kinkos really want to buy a book that, you know, has it been edited? Uh, are the ideas any good? Has anybody vetted this book? Has it, you know, has, has anybody even looked at it? So too risky. And you know what? I don't have time to read this. And I don't have to time the time to read the other 1.3 million books that came out this year. I'm just going to buy books from the people I trust. And I've got 300,000 choices to choose from every year from those people. Okay. And those are the publishers like Made for Success who have made it their business to be a trusted source for books. So the third choice, so traditional publishing, it takes a long time and you earn a small percentage of your earnings. Self-publishing is tough because it's hard to sell your books. Hybrid is the um, model that we at madeforsuccess.com operate in where the authors hire us to publish their book, but because they've hired us, it's work for hire, meaning the author retains their copyright, okay? So it's a pretty, pretty sweet deal in terms of um, owning your rights. And we pay a, a dramatically higher percentage of royalties. And we give the author exactly what they want. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a great tool and we get, we get dozens and dozens of people coming through every year. Oh, and by the way, you don't have a 1% chance of success when you come into a hybrid publisher. But we're not going to take the book and publish it until that book shines because it's our job to make you look awesome. Because I know that you're not going to book any speaking engagements unless the book is right. You're never going to get, we were talking about David Goggins a few minutes ago with Can't Hurt Me. Great book, by the way. Awesome book. Awesome if, you book. if you haven't listened to the audiobook, that's an audiobook to put on your list this year in 2021. Must listen. Must listen. Be prepared for, for the, what's going to happen in your life after you listen to it as well. <laughs> well it'll, it'll, it'll change your life. It, it really will. So, um, but that book got vetted and it got edited, and it got cleaned up, and all those things were required so that David Gawkins looks really good. So one of our, we, we do some work in the NFL with uh, professional athletes, and I was talking to one of the coaches um, for the one of the teams that we work with, and he was saying that they hired David Goggins to come in and talk because of his book. Can't hurt me. Nobody would have heard of the guy had it not been for the book, okay? Um, and uh, there's more to the story, but I'll get into that in, in, an, in another time. So anyway, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the net net. I mean, these books open up great opportunity, huge opportunities. And 
who wouldn't want to stand up in front of a, well, I mean, maybe there's a lot of people that wouldn't want to do this, but to, as a speaker, who wouldn't want to stand up in front of a uh, group of NFL players and get them motivated and change their mind about what they can and can't do in their own personal pursuits? Well, it's funny you touch on that, Brian, uh, who wouldn't want to do that? Um, the, the greatest fear on the planet, as far as, as far as I understand, is the fear of public speaking. Now, this, um, if it's there or thereabouts, one of my recent ideas, which will tie in with a, the second book that I've started, which is called, I'm still working on the title, but it's probably going to be called Dino Balls, How to Have the Life of Your Dream by Being Braver Than Everyone Else. I am planning in 2021 to perform a TEDx talk. It might be in Colorado, actually, where I am going to end up naked. And because what's scarier than public speaking, it's public speaking naked. And (laughs) it turns out in the TEDx rules, there's nothing in there about being butt naked. So, Keep your eyes and ears peeled for that one. <laughs> that I look forward. Well, actually, I, <laughs> I'll just lay it right out there. Uh, there's some things that you just can't unsee, right? And uh, But, uh, uh, boy, talk about a unique angle that's going to get a lot of attention. If you want your speaking business to uh, skyrocket, that's a pretty audacious uh, idea. Well, the concept around it—it's not not tr- to be crass, and it'll be it'll be manufactured in a way that is uh, that that is very obvious. The point will be very obvious, right? And and the the audience that are there will will have to suffer through. But you know, from a video point of view, I'm sure they'll pixelate it. Well, I hope they do. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I'm in trouble. But um, the point is, D- Dino Balls was a nickname given to me by some very good friends of mine because of the courage that I've developed uh, in getting on some of these extraordinary guests that I've had on the podcast and you've seen some of them and, you know, and and I think that's a really important message for people to be brave. And I think we are lacking in modern society, the courage that we need to really thrive. What are your, what are your thoughts on the concept of the book so far? Audacious. And I got to tell you, I love Audacious. The, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the bolder we step out as idea generators, um, the better the chance that we're going to get picked up by the media, which is the whole way that we, uh, you know, go viral in today's day and age as an influencer. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like it. I like bold. Well, I think it's it's not for it's not for the celebrity, it's not for the validation or any of that stuff. It's you know I'm not a major league baseball pitcher that's won you know world world championships or world series. I'm not a famous movie star or an ex president or anything like that. What I am is someone who's on the path who wants to become the most influential speaker, motivational speaker on the planet, and. I know that my time on this planet is limited, so I need to to shortcut some of that process. And I really feel that with the kind of person that I am and the self-confidence that I possess that's been developed, and I will talk through those processes, uh, 
you know, it's been a real wild ride over the last five years, um, has allowed me the confidence. And it, when it when it came to writing the first book, the Bet on You book, I really wrote unabashed. I wrote with gay abandon. And my my question to you, Brian, is do you find that the best books that are written come from authors that write freely and don't hold back in any capacity? Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing. When you write, there's a, a concept that's hard to describe, but I call it being in the zone. And that's where you start getting in a rhythm. And that's when the writing becomes that, what, I, what we talked about earlier is that salve for your soul. That's where the writing starts to become cathartic. Like it's these things that you want to get out. And when you get on a roll, when you get in the zone, when you get your rhythm, that's where, that's where the ideas flow the best. Okay. Now in writing, unlike speaking, okay, if you're doing a speech and you haven't rehearsed that speech dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times, it's going to be hard to find the zone right? Because you can't go back and undo it. With writing, though, you get in the zone, you get your ideas flowing, and then you throw it off to an editor, and the editor makes it shine, right? And that's not done in real time like it is when you have to do a speech. That's probably why people fear speaking so much is that there's no error, there's no room for error. If you accidentally say something wrong or, you know, or, or something goes wonky, you, you can't fix it, right? So, and yeah, so, but yeah, I, writing freely when you start to write, that's the key. You got to let it flow. Speaking of flow, amongst your other interests, you are a professional trombonist. Who, yes, indeed. Yeah. Who, so, uh, the, 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 the voice of God is what they, they give the trombone, from what I understand. <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. So if you play in a symphony, oftentimes the, uh, the line of trombone players will come in with a set of chords that have great power in, in the overall sound structure, and uh, it does feel, it, it, it feels like the voice of God in, in, in certain types of productions. Um, uh, also, interestingly, if you're a conductor of a symphony, the trombone section is your worst nightmare <laughs> because <laughs> they're, they're, they're a little bit out of tune or they're always a little, you know, rebellious and whatnot. And the uh, conductors are always trying to tr control the trombone section. But um, I played uh, jazz uh, for quite some time um, own a 17-piece swing band, play professionally around the greater Seattle area. Unlike the King Crimson, never got our lucky break where, uh, you know, Michael Buble came into town and said, hey, you're the best trombone player I've ever heard. I want you to come <laughs> with me in Brazil. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you, you've, but, but you've had some, you've had some amazing experiences and worked with some incredible artists by the sounds. Yeah, yeah, we actually did. So, um, you know, when I was in college, I got to uh, back up Ray Charles, um, which was a real treat uh, as a band. And then uh, after owning my own band, when uh, certain headline artists would come in. So if you're into jazz, 
you may have heard of a guy named John Pizzarelli. Um, his dad, Bucky Pizzarelli, was a famous guitarist, and John kind of picked up the mantle. He's he's sort of a comedian, a singer, and a guitar player. Really interesting guy. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he was looking for a backup band when he came to Seattle to play, and so our band got picked for that. Um, so awesome. it's really it's really a lot of fun playing with these uh, with these high level musicians. Um, music is a funny thing. I was talking to some friends the other day, and they were asking me about passion. And I said, okay, well, that's a funny question, but you know, honestly, I get really passionate when I do two things. That's the top of my list and it's not sex. <laughs> so <laughs> one of them is, is skiing powder. So, so I'm a, I used to teach skiing when I was a kid. So I love to ski and skiing powder. There's like a, like a Zen that, that you get into. That's, that's a self for my soul. And the other thing is playing tight harmonies in a quartet, like a brass quartet or a quintet. Um, it's hard. It's it's mentally very demanding, um, and you have to listen really hard to uh, to get everything to lock in. But it's just one of those things where I get into a zone and 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 really feel it and just just come alive. Oh, and I guess the other thing about it is that everything else goes off to the side, right? All the distractions go to the side. So speaking is fun, right? Like what we're doing now, but, you know, I'm sitting here speaking and realize that my tech guy left a phone <laughs> and the phone's been ringing off the hook and it's been bugging me. So it's been one of those things that's distracting. <laughs> I can't find that Zen moment, right? Because my, my phone's going off, but. Well, maybe um, maybe we can, uh, this might be putting you on the spot and not a problem if not. Do you have your trombone handy? Oh, uh, I don't. It's packed up downstairs. And um, asking a guy to play solo trombone on a Zoom call, <laughs> that's not what you want to do. If, well, I said, if I said I was a guitar player or a pianist, let's do that. You never ask a trombone player. <laughs> well, look, like they say, Brian, the answer will always be no if you never ask the question. And we had a guest, Wentley Phipps, come on the podcast uh, uh, about six months ago who's um, very famous for singing Amazing Grace and, oh. and, and Oprah's spiritual guide. He's the guy that actually encouraged Oprah to become who, who she is now. She, she openly credits him. Uh, he was a minister and he sung Amazing Grace a cappella uh, at the end of the podcast and, and one of the more humbling moments of my life, you know, let alone the podcast. So um, next time we have you on the show, we'll, uh, I'll give you some, some advance notice and we'll see what we can organise. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I've got a couple other speakers who are performers. Um, I'll send them your way. You'd love to have them on your show because it would be actually quite additive. Well, we've we've had uh, we've been. Thank you so much for that. We've had Mark Shulman came on as well, Pink's drummer, and uh, you know I, I'm I'm the funny one in the family. Um, all my siblings can sing. Although since I've been taking voice lessons with Roger Love, like just reading his book, my my ability to hold a note has improved dramatically. So maybe there is a career there uh, <laughs> down the line. <laughs> I'll give... hey, you, you've got the headset on, so you're halfway to being a, dr a professional drummer already. So 
<laughs> well, there's a funny story about uh, me and my drumming career, Brian. I um, one one day when I was hungover in my drinking days about a decade ago, we went to a music shop for a, with a friend of mine to get a new guitar string or something. And I sat on an electric drum kit and just tapped away. I never really played at all. And the salesman comes up and goes, hey, man, you got some natural rhythm there. And I was like, bit blurry on. I was like, really? And he's like, oh, yeah. And then, then my mate's like, dude, you like you got you got a gift there. Half an hour later and 1500 bucks later, I walk out of there with this electric drum kit. <laughs> Turns out they were taking the piss. And uh, I think my brother-in-law ended up inheriting the drum kit, which I never really used, nor had the discipline to learn to become a drummer. So anyway, that's that was a funny story. Brian, uh, this has been a really fascinating chat, and I, I know any everyone listening or watching this will be uh, garnering a huge amount of uh, value and knowledge from this because the you know one of the interviews I heard you with with Chris again, Chris Widener, talking about. Uh, what's the most respected industry or profession on the planet? And number one was a brain surgeon, I believe. Number two, an author. Author, yeah. Before we wrap this up, do you have any final notes or thoughts or ideas that you want to share with our audience? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. So um, one of the things that's been a treat for me as a publisher at madeforsuccess.com is we get to work with some pretty interesting people. And one of those guys was a guy named Zig Ziglar. And Zig is one of those individuals who will probably be in that legend category. He passed away about, I don't know, six years ago, plus or minus. Um, But I bet we'll be talking about Zig Ziglar a hundred years from now. So in my journeys as a publisher, we publish dozens of uh, projects for uh, Ziegler's company called Ziegler Inc. Um, and in fact, while we've been on this interview, my phone's been pinging me from uh, uh, text messages that I've been getting from Tom Ziegler, his son. Um, but Zig had a famous quote. And his quote is, if you want to get something, and so this is not the exact quote, but if you want to get something in life, help enough people get things that they want in their life, and then things start to come your way. So my my whole uh, attitude towards the things that I do is I'm very open-handed with the knowledge that I've gained over the years as a writer and as a speaker and as an influencer. And I, I really do enjoy open-handedly sharing that information with others. I would imagine that you've got a pocket of knowledge or a pocket of talent, or maybe you play the trombone. (laughs) Um, um, But I would say, you know, one of the greatest gifts that you can do is being open-handed with that talent or with that skill. It's amazing that, well, it's not amazing that you say that, use that Zig Ziglar quote, Brian. For anyone that's a regular listener, they will have heard me use that many, many times. And Zig Ziglar's work deeply connects with me. And when I had the honor of having Tom on the podcast, we were able to get an insight into what life was like growing up with Zig Ziglar as his father. And mm. and he's the father figure that I crave or craved, even though he's dead now. And his work continues to inspire me he's one of the ones that I frequently listen to and and I'm so glad that you share that that uh, interest 
with Zig Ziglar and, and the Ziglar Inc. Uh, company as well. For, for people listening, the, the book, Book Marketing Reinvented, you can get it on, uh, well, I just downloaded the, the Kindle and the Audible uh, just this morning. You can get that. Um, can, you, can you get it on your website as well? Madeforsuccesspublishing.com? It's available everywhere books are sold. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's but, next? Yeah, what's but if anybody does, if anybody wants to learn more about writing a book, go to madeforsuccess.com. I would definitely encourage you to go and visit that website uh, because there's a lot of resources. I've written uh, uh, hundreds of articles about the process of writing. In fact, if those of you have heard about the hero's journey, there's a, there's a whole series of articles about using the hero's journey to write nonfiction books. So I would encourage you to go and check that out. Um, there's, there's some very, very helpful writing tips. Brilliant. Any, are you active on any of the major social media platforms? Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. So both under Brian Heathman and I spell my name with a Y. Brian. Like Brian Cranston. Like Brian Cranston, exactly. Is that right? Well, Brian, it, it's been an absolute honour and privilege and thrill to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brian Heathman. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.